Being a good writer is not just one thing, and the path to getting there is varied too. We speak with Melissa Clark from the New York Times about her professional journey. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Melissa Clark, reporter for the New York Times food section. Her column is called A Good Appetite. She's also in many of their food videos. She has an MFA in writing from Columbia University, and her newest book, is Dinner in One. Welcome, Melissa. So great to be here, Liz. So tell me, when you were studying at Columbia University, was your goal to be a food writer or was there some other goal? It was my secret goal. It was definitely something that I knew that I was interested in. Um, I didn't really understand how I would make a living as a food writer. There wasn't a clear path back then. This was in the 90s. And I knew that I could be a food critic, you know, and I could review restaurants, but I didn't want to do that. And there was some, you know, there was Gourmet Magazine, there was Bon Appetit, there was some like, and I thought, well, maybe I could do that. But I I wasn't really sure how I was going to make my way. I was like, how do people who write for those magazines do that. So at the same time, I was, you know, keeping, um, I was interested in narrative nonfiction. So, uh, you know, as opposed to fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was interested in telling stories. And I wasn't interested in straight journalism. I mean, I was, but it wasn't a primary. Like, I didn't go to J school. I was doing this um, um, way to tell people stories and way to tell my own story. And I just, and Uh, Then there was this other little part of me that thought, well, maybe I'll write historical novels, you know, because those are also nonfiction narrative. I mean, they're fictionalized, but you're building on so much nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And I had um, a big interest and a minor in um, early modern history from Barnard. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe I'll like I'll be Barbara Tuckman of the you know late Middle Ages. Um, So (laughs) these were all ideas. But I knew that I wanted to write like I was like, I want to write. And I figured, let me, and also, yeah, I wasn't ready to not be in school. You know, I feel like when you get out of college and you're 22 years old, and then you have to find your way, that's so hard. Right. <laughs> I just wanted, and so I was able to, um, I had gone to Barnard, and then when I graduated, I got a job at Columbia University, because um, I lived right there, I had an apartment right there, and I got this job just at, in the administration, you know, helping. I was working at the School of Social Work, and I was taking classes to try to figure out. And I was like, let me apply to um, some research um, ships or jobs and to try to get um, a way to finance a higher education. So I, I actually got a job where I was working at the university and doing my MFA at the same part time at the same time. And so I was and able were to- you were you able to go for free because you were a staff? Oh, that's great. I, I think I had to pay for one. I think I had to pay for like, I think I got like nine credits for free and then I had to pay for three credits. So, but I got, it was like substantial. 
you know, so I mean, because it's the thing about getting an MFA is that, you know, if you get an MFA, how are you ever going to pay that money back? Right. Because you're a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. The liberal arts are not exactly the the high paying jobs. (laughs) No. No. And so I spent three years as um, I was actually a secretary for the Institute for Research on Women and Gender. Women's studies was another big interest of mine. And I worked there and um, got my MFA. And it was um, it was ideal. That's wonderful. And did you really explore other kinds of writing? You must have had to just. Yeah. And and that's when I focused in. I was like, you know what? Every single story that I tell my metaphor, my lens, my focus is food. It's just how I see the world. I can't help it. It's how I grew up. (laughs) So and then I was like, all right, this is how. And but at the same time, it was in the 90s. And it was that magical moment where there was this thing called the Internet where people needed content. And and I hated it. It was like content. You mean you want me to write something for you? Like, oh, no, no. It's like my idea content. It's like, you know, just stuff to fill the page. Like it didn't matter what it was, but it was great because it paid me for it. And so did you grow up cooking? I did. I did. I grew up um, with two very foodie parents, um, Julia Child foodie parents, you know, in the Uh 80s, 70s, Uh 80s. and my parents were psychiatrists, and but they loved to entertain. They loved to have big dinner parties. They loved to cook. They loved to cook dinner. I mean, they just loved cooking. And food was our. And it was. I grew up in a Jewish household. Um, and I think there's a lot of households like this, but um, where you know food is like it is all about the meals, you know, and in, in Judaism, it's all about the meals, right? I mean, most of religious practice takes place during a meal. So it's just like, that is, that is just like, like, this is how we communicate as a culture and how we communicate as family. And it was, you know, the kind of family. And I think a lot of people can relate to this. You sit down to breakfast and talk about dinner. You sit down to dinner and talk about tomorrow's dinner. Right. Um, you know, when I first met my husband, um, I would, he'd come home from work and I'd say, what did you have for lunch? And he'd say, I'm fine. How was your day? And, he, and I was like, he didn't understand that me asking him, that was actually me ask my language for how are you, my darling, right. you know, because I needed yeah. to know that he <laughs> ate a good lunch. And now we, now he, so now I ask him first, I'm like, how was your day? And then he'll tell me spontaneously be like, yeah. And so I had tuna for lunch. <laughs> No, I totally get it. I grew up in New Orleans in the Sicilian family. So totally get it. Very similar. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So you wind up at the New York Times. Yeah. That's just really maybe the pinnacle of food writing. And so what's it like there? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's changed a lot since I started. You know, I started... Um, and the the food section was, it was the dining section. It was very small staff. It was like, basically, you know, I was joking with uh, my colleague, Kim Severson the other day. I was like, yeah, it was just me, you and Julia Moskin, you know, <laughs> and Pete Wells was the editor. We just, I mean, we were kind of, nobody, we, we were flying under the radar. Nobody was paying attention to us. And we were just putting out this section and it was great. Um, and it's still great, but it's great. It's grown so much. And now we are NYT cooking. You know, we are this giant thing within the- wow. Um, within the business. And it's really, a, it feels very different. It feels great, but very different. Um, I have a different mandate. You know, I'm not writing stories as much as I was, which I miss, but it's also, it's interesting. It's like my job has shifted. Now I'm really focused on recipes out of everyone on the in the old staff. I mean, we've hired many recipe focused people, but I was really the recipe focused person back in the, back when it was just a in few the of old us. days. In the <laughs> old days. And, uh, and so, 
I was, um, so it really the focus of my job then was the recipe part was very small. Now the recipe part is very big. Um, and putting recipes in context is still what I do. Um, and, but it's less journalism and it's less storytelling, which I kind of miss. So, you know, I mean, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's, it's good, but it's like, it's shifted. And I don't really, I'm thinking like, where do I want to take it in the future? So I'm thinking about that as well. Yes. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your new book, uh, Dinner in One. What's the concept of that? So dinner in one, it's funny. A lot of people look at the title really quickly and they think it's dinner for one. And they think, oh, finally, someone wrote a book for meals for single people. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, no, I didn't. <laughs> but it's, so dinner in one, the idea is one pot, one pan, one skillet, one sheet pan, one instant pot, one vessel. And I mean, it's, it's a gimmick, you know, it's a gimmick. But at the heart of the book, this is a, a weeknight friendly cookbook that, tries to make your life easier by streamlining the equipment, but also the process of cooking, the ingredients of cooking and the cleanup and give you recipes that are just as delicious as if you had put more effort and dirtied more pans and more bowls and more <laughs> utensils, um, but does it more quickly. And this is, you know, you know how they say like, uh, who, who was it? What is that famous quote? I'm sorry, I didn't have time to write you a shorter letter. I didn't, you know, like, yes. you know, I mean, um, bre brevity is wit, you know, it's just like, I, or I think of this book as like a haiku. It's like the small, the fewest amount of words to create the biggest thought. Right. I, paring down is a lot of work. It is very, it is, and I love it. It's also, it's a great challenge. So I loved the confines that I gave myself. And so I had this idea for this book, but then I wrote it during the pandemic. And so all of a sudden this idea, this sort of like amorphous idea of like, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be weeknight friendly and one pad and really easy for people. And it's going to help them out on weeknight. Uh, I was living this because I went from cooking from four nights a week, five nights a week to three meals a day, seven days a week. Right. And that is a major change. And it was a lot of, I was like, oh my God, I, I need this book for myself. So it became um, a life force during the pandemic. And, you know, during the pandemic, it was like six o'clock came and that I, it was like, oh my God, give me a drink and let me make some dinner, something delicious. I needed the comfort of dinner every night and I needed my dinner to be really good. It could not be like, I'm not going to just throw chicken in the oven. It's got it. Like the whole thing um, took on even more importance because it was the thing we look forward to every night. I think there was a, um, for, for most people, there was some kind of grounding that meals took on that um, was very different during the pandemic. Um, it was like life affirming and all those things that maybe it used to always be, but somehow we were so distracted by the rest of our lives that we weren't as aware as we were during the pandemic. Exactly. I think it's exactly right. Hmm. So did you find yourself when you did this, um, finding it difficult to get food? I mean, the kinds of ingredients that you wanted? Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, it was really hard to shop. And um, I and just even going to the farmer's market, which was outdoors, you know, they they like didn't let you in. You had to wait. You had to get if you didn't get there by like eight, a quarter to eight to get there by. Eight. I mean, it was like a thing, like getting the food was a thing. You'd have to like 
for the delivery, you know, the grocery delivery, you'd have to like just keep refreshing on your screen to get a spot and then you'd get a spot and then you'd ask all your neighbors what they needed. So it was communal in a way, which was nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really, it was stressful getting the, I mean, it was just like, you know, and remember the whole toilet paper thing. I think I still have toilet paper in my basement from... I think I'm finally using it up now. I'm finally like, all right, okay, I can, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, but um, yeah, it was really stressful. Um, and I, lo- I, a lot of the recipes are pantry oriented, but another part about the book, which I think is very specific to having lived through that early pandemic was it's all very adaptable. Like I, every recipe is written with, you may not have that. You may not be able to get that. So here's what you do. And of course, now that we can get everything again, um, it's, you know, you can take that and say, well, okay, so you don't like sugar snap peas. So how about mushrooms or tomatoes? You know, so it's more, but back then it was like necessity. It was like, you can't get this ingredient. And so I'm going to tell you all of the other ingredients that you can get. Yes. I think that that, but I think that's really important today, especially where, if you're coming home and you have to make a meal and you can't go out and get it because you need to make the meal right now. So if you don't have something, it's great to have some ideas about substitution because, and also I think people uh, need to be given permission to substitute. You know, exactly. People who think that this is like a magic formula. And if you don't do it exactly the way it's written, some horrible thing is going to happen. 100%. Exactly. I want to be able to give people the confidence, but not just the confidence, the knowledge. I'm like, well, you know, they don't necessarily, not everybody knows that, okay, so I have a, a vegetable that cooks in this sauce in five minutes. What are the other vegetables that will do that? Like, how are you going to know that? Right. So I'm going to tell you that. So you're going to know that. And then if you're a more experienced cook, then you you already know. Right. But it's right. still nice. To, but then you look at the other list of substitutions for ideas. Exactly. Exactly. And if you don't like cilantro or you have that horrible right. um, genetic thing. thing where it tastes like soap or whatever, just don't use it. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing yeah. Exactly. You. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a constant, it's constantly, um, empowering people to cook food that they're going to enjoy. I also think, and I think that during the pandemic, we became really aware of that because food waste became a problem because you couldn't get substitute food sometimes. So you couldn't waste anything. You had to use everything. And to have suggestions that will allow you to use something that's left over is also, I think, a a really great thing, not only for the environment, but just for convenience. I already have this, so let's use it uh, and not have to throw it away because we just left it in the back of the refrigerator drawer. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, one of my favorite things to do is to like you know, make a meal out of like, I love the leftover meals. Like you go through the fridge and you're like, all right, all of these things, let's use them. And you put them on the counter and that's super fun. And those are some of my best meals. And then of course they're impossible to recreate because I'm like, well, I don't have three tablespoons of leftover brisket and I don't have, you know, and it's like, and I don't have um, like whatever the like half a sausage that nobody finished. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. One of my favorite things to, to do is to make something, some version of um, eggs in purgatory 
because Ooh, you yeah. can always just take all those little odd bits and put them into a tomato sauce and then break the eggs in and you've used up all those little odd bits and it's I so like true them. it's like exactly you know it's funny my husband doesn't like to have he's like off eggs for dinner for some reason which is very annoying because I love eggs for dinner um but yeah I was a similar kind of thing as like a frittata you know you do like that you get all the like you just throw all that stuff in there, that <laughs> half a sausage, those wilty carrots, just uh, throw them, grate them up and throw them in. <laughs> so one of the things that I really loved about this book is that um, you have all the different ways of doing thing in doing things in with one vessel. So yeah. yes, there's the sheet pan, but you know, I'll say, well, it's summertime and I don't want to heat up the kitchen by throwing everything into a sheet pan in the oven. And of course it's in New Orleans, so yeah. it does get very hot. Um, but, you know, there are choices where you can do things on top of the stove or you can use some other method for doing it. I, I really love that. And one of the things that I really got into during the pandemic was using the toaster oven as an oven. Yeah. It, it, yes. it yes. actually heat up the entire kitchen. And um, so I think um, so many of your ideas are, they're classic, but they're innovative at the same time. And I love that about yeah, it. That's, that's what I was going for. I was like, I didn't want to, I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm just like adding some like, you know, pretty glitter to the wheel or whatever. Or maybe I'm like <laughs> doing the wheel with garlands of flowers or something. Right. So one of my favorites, really favorites is bacon and egg spaghetti. I thought that that was just really perfect. And it's got, you know, it's nods to using um, Italian ingredients and things like that. But if you don't have anything but bacon, use bacon. I just, yeah. I love, I love that because so often people are, um, pe people are just, you know, slavishly um, using the ingredients that they think are the appropriate ones in the list. And I also like the fact that you, um, you use, um, you use ingredients that aren't always just the American canon. I, I like uh, another one that is really, really good. Cause I have made this and I think it's wonderful is crunchy peanut crusted tofu. I think that is really, really good. And oh, good. Oh, I'm it, so glad. It is one of those uh, recipes that you feel that even somebody who's not a tofu eater is going to like this because um, it not only does the tofu, you know, kind of soak up a lot of the flavor, which tofu tends to do, yeah. but all of the flavors are really good and you've got texture, which sometimes tofu can be. Yeah. Um, not good in terms of the texture. Um, and, and I, I just thought that that was a really great one. Um, oh, good. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm fond of that one too. I love, I just love the crunch and then what you don't have to fry the tofu to get the crunch. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, um, I also like that you really have some very vegetable forward recipes. So not everything is about meat or uh, obviously you use tofu, that's not meat, but it, it's not all about just the protein. You've got some really great vegetable recipes in here too, where you could have a vegetable meatless meal or something. 
Yeah. I mean, that's how we're eating a lot more at our house, you know? And so this is another, you know, I mean, not just, this isn't just a pandemic thing. This is just like how we're eating, how we've been eating the last few years is cutting down a lot on meat and eating a lot more vegetables. And so one of the features of the book is I give a recipe and then I say, well, if you want to add even more vegetables, here's how to veg it up. Because that's how I'm always (laughs) thinking, like veg it up, add more, you want to add cherry tomatoes, throw it in there, spinach. And I think that people really are, are, I think it's helpful for people to understand how that they can increase their vegetable content in their diet. I just, we should all do that. We should eat more veg. We should eat less meat. When we eat meat, we should really enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you're going to do it, really appreciate it. And eat the whole animal if you can, if your family will let you. And if they won't, send the rest to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so- How have you been enjoying your sort of trip around the country to promote this book? And how do you, how is it being received by most of the people that you've talked to? Well, you know, it's not a big, it's not a book tour. The publishers don't really do book tours, you know, anymore. They were backing away from it during, um, before the pandemic, but now then the pandemic happened and book tours just went, you know, went the way of, I don't know. The went dinosaur the never right went the way of never ever sneezing in your elbow. Everyone will now do that forever, <laughs> you know. Like, um, so this is more. I'm I'm very. It's like little trips here and there that I kind of put together myself. Uh-huh. Um, and when um, when new, the the idea of New Orleans came up, I'm like any excuse to go to New Orleans. I love the city. I want to come here. Um, and so <laughs> it's just been, you know, magical. And then since I was going to New Orleans, I was like, okay, well, I should go to Atlanta because it's, you know, so easy. It's just an easy, you know, yes. little triangle to do. Right. Right. Um, and then I'm going, I mean, I've done some New York events and I'm going to do a couple of events like Chicago um, came to me and said, well, you know, we'll fly you out. So it's it's more, you know, piecemeal. But what I love about going around the country is um, I love meeting, I love meeting people outside of my little bubble, you know, it's like a New York bubble. I love meeting other people who experience the book differently and take in the stuff I do at the times differently. And I just love hearing their ideas. And, um, and I love meeting people in person. You know, I get so many emails and I, I read these emails and you know how, when you read an email, you just, you, you just, it's just like this disembodied thing. I don't know who wrote this, right. but when you talk to a person all of a sudden there's so much more you can get out of it and get out of a conversation. So that is great. And that takes me out of my little thing. Um, I wish I could do more of it. Um, so Chicago, I'm going to do, um, I'm actually going to Columbus, Ohio for an event, which is totally great. I never uh-huh. get to, I know I never get to the Midwest. So it's like very exciting. Oh, Chicago and Columbus. So that's great. Um, yeah. And then I'll go to San Francisco for uh, going to San Francisco for a New York times thing. And then while I'm there, I'll do a book event. Sure. Yes. And just reach out to the people and see what's up. Oh yeah, that sounds that sounds really great. Um, and I'm sure that uh, you get all kinds of ideas when you're out there and from people's people's remarks. Um, Absolutely, from people's remarks. And of course, then you know you go to you know you eat in restaurants and you get I always get ideas from restaurants. Yes, yeah, that's. And we can actually go to restaurants again, which is also really wonderful. I know. It's just weird though. It's like, I'm getting used to, you know, like, all right, I hear I'm really back in the flow of going to restaurants and let's just hope that it'll stay good. Right. right. So is there anything new on the horizon? Anything at the New York Times or in, in your brain or anything like that? I mean, there's so much in my brain. 
<laughs> all kinds of things, but um, I'm, I'm, I am working on another book um, and I'm very excited about it. It's going to be a, a kitchen, a basics book, a primer, like a big book. And it's going to take the ideas that we just talked about, about um, how to, you know, give people permission to take any recipe, whether they're a beginner or a more advanced cook and make it their own by, I'm going to take the basic recipes and I'm going to break them down for you. And you're going to know these are the things that are non-negotiable. Like you have to do this, but these are the things you can change. And so every recipe is a wealth of possibility. And I'm really excited about it because I feel like I've done it a little bit and I just want to keep pushing that idea that you can break the rules. You can trust yourself in the kitchen, whether you are a novice or an experienced cook. And this is going to be my version of a recipe. And this is how I like it. But if you like it a million other ways, you're going to be able to do it. And um, I hope to empower people to, uh, to, you know, just keep going on their cooking journey. Yes. So when you explore sort of other cuisines, do you do it systematically? Do you say, okay, I'm going to explore Korean cooking now? Or do you just kind of do a kind of hit and miss sort of thing that's more ingredient exploration than it is a sort of a cuisine exploration? Um, I do it both ways. You know, sometimes I'll go, I'll do a deep dive into a cuisine and sometimes I'll just do it by recipes that I stumble across or ingredients that I see. Um, I tell people and I tell people this, and it's something that I do all the time is that when I see an ingredient and I don't know what to do with it, I take it home and figure it out. And the <laughs> internet says help you. <laughs> and right. that's just, it's just fun. It's like, oh my gosh, I've, you know, I've actually never, like, I've never cooked with, you know, I hadn't cooked with bitter melon before a few years ago. And I'm like, well, here I go taking it home and figuring it out. And you know, it's like a squash. It's totally fine. I mean, it's just like you buy the thing that you don't know what to do with. And then you find your guides online or in cookbooks, and they tell you what to do with it, and then you learn something. Okay, so you said online or in cookbooks. So are you more of an online person doing that research, or are you a cookbook person? It depends. Like, I may not know which cookbook has the ingredient. It's easier, you know, going online, if you, especially if you find an ingredient, mm -hmm. you can just look it up, and you can get all the information that you need about it. And then maybe you can turn to a cookbook as well. I mean, I'm a cookbook person. I love cookbooks. I tend to trust cookbooks more than online recipes, although it depends because there's amazing online recipes. I guess, you know, one thing that I have learned for my my years of journalism is I never trust any sources. I need to double check and cross-reference and ask again. So I'm probably going to go online and to a cookbook and back online and to another cookbook, and then I'm going to figure out how to cook dinner. <laughs> <laughs> And so are you, um, are, you're not cooking three meals a day anymore, right? No, thank God. No, my daughter's back in school. Woo. <laughs> and, you know, school, school, not Zoom school. And, um, you know, and now we're back to, we're back to the way it was. I'm still working from home. I mean, I've always worked from home mostly though, because I cook and New York Times doesn't have a cooking kitchen where we can test recipes. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that's always been the way that my job has gone. So that hasn't changed for me, but I don't have, I don't have to feed. I don't have to really, it's like, it's the kid. I mean, the husband can figure it out, but the kid, I mean, now she can figure it out, you know, but when, you know, a few years ago when she was in sixth grade, it was a different story. And plus, you know, dealing with the emotions behind everything. Oh yes. Yes. That's also hard. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. All of our emotions. Yes. And so is she cooking now? She makes a salad for us every night. She's a salad maker. 
and okay. she's very good at it. Um, she loves salad. So uh -huh. I figured it was a thing to get her to do since she loves it. Mm -hmm. She tosses it like I taught her with her hands right in the bowl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, she- um, And she makes the dressing? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we make it right in the bowl. You know, the lettuce uh -huh. goes in, you drizzle it with, I know, you drizzle it with your lemon juice, your salt, your olive oil, and you just toss it. Okay. Like, we keep lemons, cut up lemons in the fridge so that she's, they're just right there for the grabbing. And she doesn't like balsamic vinegar and dressings either. She and I were like, I mean, <laughs> even before I had taught her that, I remember the first time she tasted a balsamic vinegar dressing, she was like six and we were somewhere, I don't know. And she was just like, what's this? <laughs> um, little, little pet peeve, little pet peeve. Um, but, and she, but anyway, so she, she made dumplings for herself while I've been away, um, you know, in the microwave. Uh -huh. <laughs> Well, I try to teach her how to do it on the stove. She can broil a sausage. She can make dumplings. Um, she can figure out where the yogurt is and cut up some fruit and veg. But um, she's not, at this point, she says that cooking, and she likes to cook sweet things, makes bake. She likes to do that. Mm -hmm. And she'd love, you know, because it's unlimited sugar. But she says that she's not really interested in cooking because I'm always in the kitchen, which isn't true. I mean, but I also think there is something about me just physically being in the house that puts her off you know like what she doesn't want to feel judged she doesn't want to feel like I'm watching over her shoulder so I hope she goes and does it when I'm not around you know I'm happy she's doing it a little bit now um but she will she'll figure it out you know yeah of course she will yeah. but people do say oh your mother you know look at who your mother is you must you know cook all the time and she's just like nope <laughs> no I I totally understand that my mother was a my mother cooked very well but um, she was also a really great seamstress and she wanted me to sew and I always felt judged always. And so now I won't. sew. I mean, I will sew on a button or something or fix a, a hem that's pulled out or something like that, but I won't sew because yeah, um, yeah. it's just like, no, I'm not. sewing. Yeah. I hope I didn't do that to her. I hope she will cook one day, but you know, if she doesn't, that's, I mean, yeah, it's her life. <laughs> it's her life. You know, she'll do what she does. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally understand. Absolutely. Well, Melissa, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation and um, everybody should remember the name of the book is Dinner in One and it is available everywhere. Oh, Liz, it was great speaking with you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.